I'm Jacqueline, the therapist, and I interview real people with real problems, no small talk. So addiction and alcoholism. Usually when these terms are mentioned, the picture of a homeless derelict or a raging drunk come to mind, right? But these are really extreme cases of what addiction and alcoholism look like. Now, I have known many, many very highly functioning addicts. And what I mean by that are I've known people who are CEOs of companies. In fact, we all do. It's been in the media, you know. But because our society values success more than, let's say, spiritual and emotional health, it's easy to dismiss these things. But in fact, the disease of addiction and alcoholism runs rampant across the board. It's just a matter of how extreme these cases are. Now, some say alcoholism and addiction are genetic, which they can be. Trauma that happens in one's own childhood, or at any time for that matter, can also cause its onset. And, and I think personally that society has often, again, discounted the role of trauma and the part it plays in contributing to mental illness. Now, other factors also contribute to alcoholism and addiction. And what I mean by that is I believe that culture and our institutions, such as our churches and our schools, can also play a very huge part in triggering the onset. And 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 if not necessarily causing it, but contributing to it or, or fast forwarding, uh, let's say, spiritual, mental and emotional imbalance. Today, I'm interviewing Tatiana. Now, Tatiana grew up in Poland during communism. And what's interesting is she, she goes into a little bit about how in the Eastern Bloc countries, you know, alcohol is such a part of their lives that in essence, it's kind of hard to tell what the line is for an alcoholic versus just something that's very culturally acceptable. Now, Tatiana's father was in fact an alcoholic and she was actually uh, very against alcohol until her late 20s when the pressure of running her own business triggered her own usage with uh, drugs and alcohol. She was a highly functioning addict. She actually did run her own business and, and was basically microdosing throughout the day to get through the day. Now, Tatiana is very pretty with long blonde hair and she's tall and thin and has big blue eyes. And you can tell when you meet her that this woman is a fighter and is tough and a survivor. After knowing her a while, I decided that I really wanted to give her some bangs, not not heavy blunt bangs, but imagine kind of uh, um, a middle part with a side sweep, uh, one you know one side going to the left and one side going to the right. Just think more like Brigitte Bardot type of bangs, soft ones. And after I did it, I noticed how her whole face changed. She looked softer and more in touch with her playful and feminine side. And it took a little bit for her to get used to wearing them in the way that I cut them. And it just reminded me that, in essence, that's how life is, right? Sometimes we can make the tiniest adjustment and everything can shift. All we have to do in that is just keep following up with the new change and keep tweaking it, even if it's uncomfortable for us. And it's uncomfortable for us because it's new, right? And and oftentimes we have an aversion for the new thing because it's not, again, our comfort level. But when we do that, so much can actually shift in that moment. So before I get into my interview with her, I just wanted to let everyone know that I'm now going to be answering all your hair and makeup questions you have for me on my show. If you're being interviewed, you'll be able to ask anything you like. But if you have any questions and don't want to be on the show, either way, please direct message me on Instagram. Now that's if you are interested in being interviewed, or if you just have hair and makeup questions you want answered, direct message me. My handle is Jacqueline Bush. That's J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E-B-U-S-H. I look forward to hearing from you. And here's my conversation with Tatiana. Hi, Tatiana. Hi, Jacqueline. So I wanted to start off by, we had been having conversation a little bit prior to your hair, and I'm wondering if you have any specifics on hair or makeup uh, that you'd like to know. Actually, I do. Um, I think the most pressing one is that sometimes after a long day at work, I kind of feel not very visually attractive, and I may have like a quick meeting after work, just being around people. How 
could I in a like three to five minutes something really quick and simple to maybe give myself a quick more feminine look something um, that I just whether through hair makeup or both just really simple quick with a product no product or mm-hmm. well my first question to you would be you're coming from work with your hair up or hair down I mean what's uh, going uh, the okay. hair is usually up yeah okay and you like to wear your hair down when yeah. you go out mm-hmm. and uh, what makeup do you usually wear for work um, for sure, you know, mascara, I'm also accentuating my eyebrows and a bit of, you know, eyeshadows most of the time as well, but for mm-hmm. sure mascara and, and, uh, the, um, eyebrows are accentuated and a yeah. lip gloss. So I'm all about a brow, um, because I notice as of late, this is just where I'm at. If, even if I do a little bit fill in and as we age, I'm always making sure to get the arch to the end of the brow because that's where we thin. So I always start filling in, making the the arch of the brow a little bit thicker, leading out to the feathering it out towards the ends. That's the first off. You do that alone, you need less mascara. The other part I'm gonna say is I'm really into natural mascaras at the moment uh, because I noticed that when I take them off, it feels very different, more like a crayon versus plastic of normal mascara. And here's the other part I like about them is you can layer them all day long and they don't look clumpy. So at the end of the day, I can still give myself two more coats. And I always carry a few lip glosses in my purse so I can mix and match. So I have my neutral color for day and then I have something a little bit darker. Um, I discovered this this new brand actually uh, called Lap Kiss Care. I'm not sure if it's sold in um, outside the US, but um, the colors can be really strongly pigmented or you can pat them out to be super light. So I just use those and give myself a stronger pigment. And I like them because they don't have the ingredients that cause breast cancer and mm-hmm. other things. But there are also other products you can do the same with any strong lip lipstick or lip gloss. And then you can pat it out for daytime and make it a little heavier for night. So for hair, if I don't have any tools on hand, I like to carry, you know, you can get those travel size containers of dry shampoo or thickening spray. Um, The dry shampoo I like is the chlorine dry shampoo. It's my favorite by far. And the Orbe thickening spray is great if you have fine hair that tends to kind of eat product and collapse. Like you you were mentioning that that's an issue of yours beforehand. You spray it on completely dry hair and then you kind of just scrub your fingers at the scalp and it'll give a little extra lift. And then I carry around a little bit of pomade, which is like a wax kind of Mm -hmm. product. And that can just help keep a little hold and texture in my hair, like the sprays will give it more volume and lift and will make your hair a little bit thicker. The The wax will give it a little more definition. So if you have that on hand, you're good to go and you don't need much. And then the other part of that is just having the right kind of cut that, you know, you can still wear your hair up and perhaps have a little layering around your face. You know, this makes all the difference or, you know, I usually carry in my bag a small thing of wax maybe a travel size container of dry shampoo. I personally don't carry that around just because I'm too lazy. So I'll just wear my hair up in a bun. So then when it falls down, it'll have that natural lift. I carry a mascara and a lip gloss and then I'm good to go. Oh, and bobby pins. I always have like a few bobby pins in my purse for if I wanna do a proper chignon or something like that. Great, that sounds super inspiring. Can't wait to try it out when I get home. (laughs) Okay, so. Tatiana, I met you at this retreat we were both on last year, which was in Italy in this amazing location in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) the most nurturing, beautiful, soft, gentle environment with the most intensive emotional work that was so draining and so deep and so efficient as a healing mechanism that that shifted many things in my life and 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 you and I had bonded over you know very similar like deep thought processes and and um, the Abraham Hicks and and Tony Robbins kind of work and and I loved hearing your story about how while you'd done all that stuff you still kind of bottomed out and like it wasn't the answer it didn't fix you um and i just be i i would love to hear you share with us your story of kind of you know what happened for you now tatiana you were actually put off by alcohol correct Uh, growing up in an alcoholic household i was very put off by um, alcohol it actually to me symbolized um, a weakness i did not understand what alcoholism is 
uh, beyond just a act of physical drinking and picking up uh, a drink. To me, that was alcoholism, uh, and that's just but one of the many symptoms, as I understand and know it from my own experience today. Um, so I stayed away from alcohol growing up also in a culture of Eastern Europe that alcohol is a is a widely accepted um, yeah. numbing um, base mechanism uh, for any yeah. discomfort, emotional discomfort, um, masquerading as a social lubricant, but it's actually all pervasive in a culture that, you know, just on mass, you know, it's, it's, um, it's it, it just, yeah, people, as I would say today, use it for, for me- emotional numbing or dealing with yeah. difficult situations in life. Um, so I stayed away from alcohol. Um, I had a couple, you know, just the social experiences with alcohol, but I didn't like the taste. I immediately started throwing up and I said, you know, I, I can't handle it. So I didn't start really drinking until later in life, until I was about 27, 28. Wait, so when you said you immediately started throwing up, were you immediately over drinking or just you would have that kind of bad reaction? Well, it's, you know, that's partially the cultural thing where, um, you know, I'm growing up in Poland specifically, that's where I grew up with. People drink or were drinking at the time um, just straight vodka, which is 40% proof. Uh, doing shots, this is how it was, For that's how people drank it. It was not diluted into drinks with mixed with Coca-Cola or juices. So for someone who was... Would know, they put ice in it? No, 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 there's no ice cubes. Lord. So this, <laughs> yeah, no. that's, yeah, it's not just <laughs> doing like, the, let's do shots. This is, this is how vodka was served and this yeah. is how alcohol was served or people had beers, but it was basically not diluted with anything else. Yeah, and my first experience with alcohol, yeah, with with alcohol was I think was seventeen, turning eighteen or something around that age, and was with friends. We didn't have much to eat, and of course, this is how it served, and so I immediately I just felt sick. You know, we were going through rounds, and I had no prior experience understanding like how many do I need to feel good, whether it's one or five, because people kept going, and after couple of you I just started feeling dizzy and 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 physically physically ill like vomiting so so I'm imagining that it must not have even been and correct me if I'm wrong that uh, the the use of the heavy usage of alcohol was not even looked at as a negative thing it was more like this is just what everybody does absolutely yeah and I always find that an interesting point of you know culturally the part that alcohol plays in our lives like how how each of us use it and you know not just social situations but you know emotionally coping as you said whereas if if you grow grow up in a culture such as yours where it's just this is what you do mm-hmm. how do you even decipher that that's over usage I mean, well, mm-hmm. uh, how? I mean, that must have been. <laughs> There's a lot of double standards. Um, I think till this day, still, uh, and for sure, about twenty, twenty-five years ago, where I was coming of age, um, and more becoming more aware of it, and mostly people were, you know, that I've been surrounded with, both within the family and outside of the home, um, they were, you know, grouping or compartmentalizing people into. Somebody is, let's say, an alcoholic if they cannot hold a job, right? That was kind of the thing. If you, if as long as, especially, and it also is the double standard between men and women, but especially, you know, particularly to men, if a man was loud, abusive, but um, to the family, but as long as he was and drinking, but as long as he was holding a job, um, very often I've heard people labeling, well, he just likes to drink. Um, mm-hmm. and making a little bit like funny faces around it. Uh, and they, nobody would dare to say someone is an alcoholic. Um, they would just say, well, just has, you know, because it also was thought, well, alcoholic is someone who cannot control it, but it wasn't really understood as to why. But if somebody was homeless or, or just not, you know, jobless, that's when that label will come in. Whether they in reality were alcoholics or just heavy drinkers, nobody knows. But that was the social misunderstanding, in my view, and a double standard. And also, nobody would be interfering with it. You know, yeah. like nobody would just like family situation. Nobody, 
you know, would interfere whether it was an overt abuse going on or some other um, unmanageabilities that probably would require um, oftentimes police to intervene. Um, that was not, that was just kind of set aside and yeah, not connected or related with alcohol or substance abuse of any sort. So going back to when you're 17, you started seeking out some kind of different ways of being mm-hmm. through the world. So what was the instigator for that? I I felt, you know, my high school, I think a lot of people have that experience. I just uh, couldn't fit myself in. It was a huge um, transition coming from grade school into high school at age 15, where um, I just lost my identity up until graduating from grade school. I, I was... Um, straight A student, school president, you know, a lot of sports activities. And then I went into high school into an environment that I just didn't know, like teachers didn't know me. I just felt like I need to prove myself all over again. And I didn't, my low self-esteem started kicking in. Um, I did not have support. That's what I, you know, know today and home to help me to go through that transition that I think a lot of you know, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's part of the going through stages of life um, that teenagers face uh, going into a new school and and just being seen and needing to assert ourselves or find our own identity. I didn't have that support and I I just started to isolating. I stopped, eventually I stopped going to school and yet I always had the value of you know, pursuing knowledge and especially self-knowledge that was something that just became like a safe refuge. I would start reading books. Um, There was not many at the time as it is today translated into Polish. Sometimes there were just literally Xerox copies of Buddhist teachings or some early metaphysical teachings. Um, It was back in 1990, 1989, Poland was just transitioning from 1989, the Berlin Wall falling down and Poland slowly transitioning into democratic system and opening up being to the Western economy, to the Western culture. Wait, so you, that was the first time you even had access to those Mm -hmm. books, right? Mm -hmm. It was when the the wall was coming down and all that. Okay. So it sounds like you're saying that you always had something in you that was a little bit of a seeker. Right. In a way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then fast forward to 17, you turn 17, you're feeling kind of ostracized from mm-hmm. your community and you start doing the uh, spiritual mm-hmm. seeking, mm-hmm. which leads you down a path of discovering the Tony Robbins. And Louise Hay. That Louise she, Hay. she was the, Louise Hay. that was yeah. the first, well, I discovered Louise Hay already when I moved to the States. That was the first book I bought. I went to the... So wait, where did you go to high school at 17? In Poland, yeah. But So I, like, as far as Louise Hay, because that was really, like, the practical spirituality, I think, that I found that I knew, because she was so uh, pragmatic about how to apply spiritual principles Mm -hmm, to life. mm Before, it was mostly teachings, you know, Buddhist teachings, and there was some pragmatic approach, but it was still very philosophical, esoteric, very airy. I still didn't know exactly, you know, how can it help me other than it was expanding for sure my consciousness, my understanding of the world, but I still didn't um, have much hope how it's going to help me to change myself, transform. So you discover that. You start on that journey. You go deeper and deeper into it. You're not using drugs or alcohol at this point. Mm-hmm. And what's going on? And where does the trigger happen where things start going? I don't know if it's the other direction because what I am aware of is, is right, you know, that there's this term dry drunk that mm-hmm. I don't know if people are familiar with. But what it means is you can be an alcoholic but not be drinking but still have all the actions of mm-hmm. the alcoholic. And mm-hmm. Chances are, if you grew up with an alcoholic parent, as a child, we have no boundaries. So, you know, we're taking on whatever the parents are projecting. And so anything that they're not feeling, they're pushing onto us. And then we take on as our own emotions and we repeat all the same patterns. So if they're not processing stuff in a healthy, efficient manner, then we don't process stuff in a healthy, efficient manner. So 
you're doing this work on yourself, mm-hmm. yet there must be some disconnect happening, mm-hmm. which is... The disconnect, as I, as I understand it today, has been happening that at the time, obviously, I had no idea that I had personality traits of of alcoholic and addict. So everything that I was pursuing or doing, there's this old saying, it was used by my disease. And eventually it's something that's, you know, like a neutral tool, uh, like a hammer, it could be used to build a house or literally abuse someone or kill them. And I think what started at certain points happening that my low self-esteem, my self-doubts started kicking in. And a lot of those teachings, I would just almost turn them into obsessions, almost like in a ritualistic way. I just was pursuing, like, if I only do this or I meditate in a certain way or if I do affirmations and, you know, repeat them or write them a number of times, you know, I will have that sense of emptiness that was, you know, that I've been trying to escape, it will be lifted. And I couldn't articulate it. I, I wasn't even quite aware. It's still in my early 20s, that black hole that I am very aware of, you know, especially coming into my sobriety, um, that, you know, that loneliness that passes all understanding, that black inner hole that I still was using those teachings, eventually people, places and things or pursuits of money or success um, to fill it in. So it wasn't until I started, you know, becoming sober and and recovery that today I can use those or apply rather those teachings in a way and it's constructive that helps me to heal my life. And I think that's how they were intended to do. I just was straying with them because I had no idea there was something that needed treatment uh, of, of trauma. And, you know, that's why drugs and alcohol eventually to replace those other pursuits totally yeah i've had that that same experience where you know you can use it for good or good use it for bad and and that's my issue when i hear a lot of people talk about love and light and the affirmations unless you've done the work around it all you're doing is spiritually bypassing which means disconnecting from reality and it's like using religion in a way you know in that same way it's like it's not really going to do the trick you know um, so, okay, so you're using that stuff. It's becoming an obsession. I'm curious of what's actually going on in your relationship at that point with your, your boyfriend. Well, we got married uh, very like within a year since we moved to the U.S. But Were you, were you happy with him when you moved to the U.S.? Um, yes. I mean, like I, I really felt like he's the guy, that he's the, the love of my life when mm-hmm. we met very early on. Um, and he was good to you? Yes, he, yeah. It was just, uh, I've been always very aware that I do not ever want to repeat patterns of my mom, which is never have an active addict or alcoholic, and for sure not someone who is physically abusive. And that, I I can say, luckily, never happened to me. Uh, and my ex-husband has been very loving and kind. Um, I think we both um, have our own ba- baggage with, uh, of unhealed wounds i think i was medicating them differently that he did um, not with substances but so you felt happy with your relationship i just felt that i didn't have that that getting into the relationship and being together it really filled a lot of that black hole at least for a while you know and uh, i i was like and very late bloomer when it came to dating and I felt very inadequate and I attributed it to my physical appearance of course especially you know as a as a woman yeah uh, and I tried to alter my my um, appearance since mid or even early teenage years through dieting makeup hair dressing you know how I dressed um, and eventually kind of moving into avoidance realizing I will never measure up. Nobody will ever want to date me. So I just went into this rebellion and I started kind of suppressing that pain of loneliness and not not enoughness, mostly with doing sports. I think that was one of my first addictions. I would just practice multiple disciplines of sports in a very... um, um, at at the very intense and obsessive almost levels. Yeah. um, 
that it's yeah just probably about 15 hours a week of sports if not more and some of them competitively and you know getting injuries being in pain you know more and more because of that um and i i just felt you know i, I just literally tried to push men or, or boys or you know my potential partners away because i was afraid I and mean, I, I felt like i cannot face another rejection or i couldn't understand yeah. what was happening i just didn't want that pain yeah you know this is a side note about the sports thing because i have now come to understand that you know sports are totally glorified in our culture right it's the romantic story of the you know the hero who sacrifices everything and has the ultimate discipline and is going through all this pain and then for the one moment of glory and actually it's completely glorifying something that could be incredibly unhealthy and i'm not saying it's unhealthy for everyone but nobody ever talks about that side of it's just as it can be just as much of an addiction and especially if you look at extreme sports people those are people looking for the high actually like to feel alive the adrenaline junkie literally it's called adrenaline junkie for a reason and everybody just looks at that as the cool at that as the cool thing and nobody's talking about the negative side so anyway i just wanted to say a relate mm -hmm. on that so it okay so it seems like you always felt at least quietly to some extent like this um need to fill the void this obsession in some way it starts escalating right and then you're doing it around the affirmations and the 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 kind mm -hmm. of new age self-help stuff you discover all these spiritual teachers and then what what kind of triggers you to start using well i mean that was still a bit like my like i had a few years basically where i felt like you know, there's not much to pursue in my relationship. I kind of felt secure in it that, you know, my husband won't leave me. Um, I think there was, you know, I've always lived in some type of a love obsession, never cheating uh, in any way, but feeling like I really was craving intimacy that I was not able to allow in. And I'm not quite sure, you know, I don't want to take my ex-husband's inventory so I don't know to what capacity he would have been able to even provide it. But I know for me, I'm, I am I was just terrified of intimacy. Yet that was, I was craving it um, for normal reasons of having those human needs, which I have been suppressing for a long time, very ashamed of. And um, But they were popping up. They were like the fantasies that were always in the background of my mind. And then money, you know, money was the, the great, like, this is, this is it. So I started using all the affirmations, all the knowledge like the, the real purpose for it was not to spiritual evolve spiritually but really to create to bring abundance in that was that was mm. like a holy grail mm -hmm. okay so it was really about the money because yeah. then the money was going to start you know yeah. finding a business you know like i also started learning about hypnosis self-hypnosis uh psychology of influence everything was kind of channeled you know stock markets uh, history of money, uh, studying, I mean, like that became a grand obsession. And I felt, well, the teachings of spiritual teachings, like this is how you bring and manifest what I wanted to manifest. It wasn't health. It wasn't really relationships. I've always focused on money and success. That was not even creativity. That was the ultimate. And I'll be all. So you, you're fueled by that. You do you start becoming successful in some arena work wise or I started I mean that's part of the <laughs> part of my uh, you know symptoms of my as I understand my my addiction is that I never had a a good compass you know sp well calibrated spiritual GPS to assess my own level of success or performance you know am I good enough and in my own eyes I've never was that's part of that black hole. Yeah. So the outside world, the friends would, who were always been genuine and true to me, they would tell me that, you know, that I'm successful, that they're inspired by, by, you know, starting my first business when I was, um, when I was 24 and getting it off the ground within 10 months, come, going from zero to 12 employees in 10 months. And, and it just, it was something very natural in one way i just i i just saw that there's so many problems with that business you know and why this isn't really mm -hmm. a success because i had a completely different vision well in some ways like what it would feel like 
that was the problem what it would feel like it's you know if i have number of zeros on my bank account after you know at my when i look at my balance okay. the, but the reality wasn't matching because i still didn't feel how i had thought i would feel when yeah. i had original vision so that's and also there was a lot of anxiety about the imposter syndrome because the i imposters. felt like yeah. Yeah. Um, i didn't know how to deal with it it's like it's my business but i don't even want to talk about it um, I've also, because having employees and clients and having zero tools, how to, you know, how to deal with human relationships in a way that's not codependent, having boundaries, communicating even my mm -hmm. expectations or to an employee or the negotiating a contract and then executing it, you know, confronting someone yeah. with performance faults. I was absolutely terrified. I started having progressively stronger anxiety borderline panic attacks and that was the first time I was, when i the year i started my business that i i started searching um getting uh psychotherapy for the first time in my life because i i just couldn't cope and i knew i couldn't get out of this business because i just started it um you know financially and otherwise i just couldn't just walk away from it and fast forward uh, about seven years five years more or less I started slowly kind of having like a glass of wine around dinner and I knew that it it takes the edge off that that anxiety that I was waking up every single morning and increasingly getting stronger throughout the day even though I was in therapy I continued to go to different seminars do all those mm -hmm. meditations mm -hmm. and stuff um, that anxiety nothing was taking it off um, as as fast and as effectively as alcohol, a glass of wine, and then a second glass of wine. And then I had a triggering event where I um, I basically uh, had a, I know how to even describe it, but let's say a fallout with my, with my parents who were living mm -hmm. across the ocean. They were back in Europe and my only sister. And as a consequence, I didn't have contact with them for about seven, eight years. Um, that's my closest, my only family. And the pain of that experience was so strong that I literally started drinking cause, like, just to medicate it. I started yeah. from one day to the next because all the prayers, all the meditations, all the therapy, nothing could, I mean, the pain was so strong I couldn't function. And I found that if I drink and I continue to drink, um, then I can, at least that was lessening that pain. Yeah. Can I share something mm -hmm. really quick that has reminded me of, you know, obviously I know you and we were speaking earlier, um, just as, as far as, you know, one of your fears about a pattern that you recreate for yourself is, or the filter that you see the world, right, either way, you know, because our implicit memory sets that up that we're always seeing that same pattern, whether it's happening or not. You had mentioned that one of those for you that's really triggering for you, that really scares you, is that you somehow always end up being the third wheel, like the mm -hmm. odd one out, mm -hmm. and that you kind of almost conspired against in a way. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense, you know, I know you're in a new relationship, and you had mentioned some of the fears that are going on with um, this person and their old relation, you know, that, that guy's old relationship and stuff, and, you know, it was kind of bringing up those same fears, not about that part but just for you the mm -hmm. fear of being the third wheel and so when you just mentioned this thing that happened with your parents like that's a big trigger point for you because mm -hmm. it sounds like that's what happened you were mm -hmm. basically third wheel and that just sent you mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. so then that would make sense why fast forward to today and you've done all this work that could set you off mm -hmm. and bring mm -hmm. up a lot of terror yeah absolutely because that was i mean that pattern that wasn't the original event. The original events were multiple uh, instances in my childhood where I was the third wheel. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so that, I think that we just recreated that dynamic when I was 27, yeah. 28. Literally, it felt like time stood still. You might, it might have as well been 1980, 1983, four, five, six, seven, because that was very uh, frequent dynamic of you know early adolescence and late kind of childhood years for me when my sister was born was seven years uh, younger than me and that just literally the unhealed multiple traumas around that dynamic was replayed when I was 27 28 
Um, even though I had a lot of knowledge and a lot of therapy under my belt at that time, and, and I understood how dysfunctional my, my upbringing was with, with a lot of um, abuse and no skills of human relations or communications, self-knowledge availed us nothing as the old adage you know recovery adage goes i was powerless in face of this my you know my my brain just shut down my body was in i mean it was was in trauma i was i was literally in in panic i I couldn't function and alcohol biochemically was altering my mental uh, state yeah that i was able to to live function and and breathe almost well the thing is you know, we, and this is why a lot of people knock therapy because they say, oh, I don't want to, you know, figure it out. What does that do? Blah, blah, blah. But the first stage is awareness, right? You Mm -hmm. have to be aware intellectually. And then at some point you have to integrate it and be aware emotionally. So what I mean by that is if you say like, I know, um, you know, whatever, I know that my father used to beat me, for example, right? You can know that in your head, Mm -hmm. But if you don't connect to the pain of how that felt growing up, nothing will shift. And the tricky part is you can't always control. You, I, in my experiences, I can't control when I'm going to get to the place where I'm integrating emotionally. Like, you know, sometimes it's years later that all of a sudden I have the exact same memory that I've always had. And then I, all of a sudden it hits me in my body. Oh, my gosh, that's what I was feeling. That's, I can't believe I was feeling that. You know, years later, that's coming up for me now a lot in my life, connecting to what I was actually feeling growing up versus just thinking, mm-hmm. right? So, and I, I, so I think that's the, the the hard part is, you know, how does one integrate that, right? You have the mm-hmm. awareness, and then the awareness is scary mm-hmm. because then all that it, it feels scary. But then if you're not actually integrated, then what do you do with the information? Mm-hmm. So for you, that actually, you know, I wouldn't say the information drove you to drink, but the fear seemed to drive you to drink, right? Or the pain of the abandonment of your family and the third wheel kind of situation, in essence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the because I, 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 well, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, but I will always choose awareness over unconsciousness um, because there's a difference between pain and suffering. Um, obviously it took a long time. I wish I, it could, it would have been much shorter, but because I had a lot of self-knowledge in one sense, it hurt more because, you know, being the whistleblower in my family and naming alcoholism and abuse for what it was, um, instead of saying, you know, my, my parents always told me what a great parents they were and how ungrateful I am. Right. So having that awareness and seeing that pattern being repeated pattern of abuse in my adulthood basically emotional abuse uh there was you know a lot of you know a lot of things happened during that short period of couple of weeks when i just full self-protection decided to walk away because it, it just really got to the point where police got involved that's how um how traumatizing it became with your family with my family yeah. and so in one sense i felt that it hurt more because they were in their unconsciousness replaying and nothing really had changed in my view and you know having years of therapy at that time under my belt on the other hand the split between what you just mentioned between the head and the body because the emotions they only come through the body is basically the the motion that's the physical visceral response of the nervous system and and the tissue of a human being um, that despite having the knowledge i knew what was going on but that wasn't lessening the pain and having no other tools no trauma therapy um you know my and not really even a support system per se um like a social support system because part of that disease it's really thrives in shame and secrecy so i wasn't really talking about how i felt how out of control i felt um other than a little bit with my ex-husband but even i didn't want to burden him with him because he felt completely powerless over this as well he didn't know where his place was in this completely crazy uh drama that was unfolding in front of him i you know alcohol became this great very effective in one way bypass to shut down my body shut down the emotions or numb them enough that i could function because my mind could understand it, but it was just like a silent witness 
and all I was feeling was just was unbearable pain and also the unbearable pain because I with that awareness and the work of therapy that I've done for years I started feeling those feelings this, this righteous anger of what was an unfairness and grief and sense of loneliness and loss that I couldn't feel or when the original pain was happening in my childhood and adolescence within the same dynamic so it was all happening in my body but I just you know out of literally pure survival I was reaching for alcohol that I had a his you know I remember that it worked and it did you know and a blackout felt good you know mm. and so okay how many years do you start using like how many years do you keep using before you realize you have an issue I knew within literally weeks because I just I just I knew that I didn't know how to function and I started drinking every day and I knew that this is like I was I had enough awareness and I read books on recovery before even picking up the drink regularly I knew what 12-step programs were but is that when you stopped using no 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 it took I mean it um I was drinking non-stop let me just think real quick it was um eight years every day pretty much every day every yeah and it started then earlier and earlier and earlier mm-hmm. um and using drugs too right you were... I didn't start using drugs until I was 37 until I had a big relapse and moved to Europe back to Europe I just was too scared of drugs I didn't have access I was afraid I would get in trouble with the law and you know my business my life um was, I was... this the same business the whole time that you yes were... So Mm -hmm. you were still highly functioning, having a successful business with multiple employees, drinking. And also started getting, like, I go go to college, like, pretty much full time. Oh, my gosh. So you were drinking starting in the morning, I'm assuming you said earlier? Eventually, yes. I mean, it started coming early. I mean, I, like, I was also pursuing towards the end of that period of my drinking. I was painting and, like, writing a blog. I just, like, somehow alcohol was fostering my creativity because my self-judgment the sense this this grand censorship in my head was being medicated while i was mildly intoxicated that i had this window of of painting and creating collages and writing wow and Uh, so why would you stop if all that's happening so i was just yeah yeah. and but then it's just you know as progressive as alcoholism is uh physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually you know i would just stay up till four in the morning get maybe two or three hours of sleep, start my day, and then early afternoon, I mean, it start would start earlier and earlier that I would just, you know, dri- drink, you know, driving under influence, uh, having my little Starbucks coffee mug with me filled with, all, with wine and um, an espresso shot or two, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't get drowsy, but I would still be in Wine and espresso shot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. intense. <laughs> Well, going to, you know, going to any lens, you know, <laughs> um, but it's it just, you know, that's why I think alcohol, alcoholism is so misunderstood by people who are not alcoholics. It had nothing to do with how it tasted. It had nothing to do with being fun. It's, it's a pure um, medication. It really enabled me to function while it did until it, you know, for all alcoholics, we cross this invisible line that we cannot live with it and we cannot live without it. Where are you now mm-hmm. with your job? You like it somewhat yeah. for certain things it I offers mean, you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the aspect that's kind of, of giving or, or like contributing to something good. You know, my clients mm-hmm. always are very appreciative and, and being able to help them um, with like oftentimes coming in physical pain or discomfort and I can help them to, to be free mm-hmm. of it or, or relieve it. Uh, but it's for in many ways this is not not something that i i that feels fulfilling to me i i'm naturally creative person it's so you know i i feel like i could be creative in multiple mediums um and that is something i would like to actually also be able to support myself um for financial reasons but also so I don't have to um, compartmentalize my time because uh, as my f- currently photography is, is my medium of, of self creative self-expression, 
I don't have time to um, devote it to my photography, to pursue it, to develop my skill and develop my creative vision and the capacity that I would have if I didn't have to first allocate my time to get my financial needs met through my job. Can we break this down for a second? Mm-hmm. Okay, because I'm comparing it to, you know, as, as how we handle one thing is how we handle everything. And I'm thinking about how your work life right now still mirrors what you grew up with, right? If you had to compartmentalize certain areas of yourself, certain personality traits and characteristics, you know, really to survive, right? You know, if you're just reacting all the time, in essence, you know, if you're just surviving from, you know, what you said you grew up in is kind of an extreme environment. You had mentioned earlier about, you know, at 12 years, 12 years old, having to carry the coal at the stairs in the dark, right, just to make your apartment warm, you know, extreme kind of conditions that, you know, a lot of people in America are, are, are blessed enough to not even have to, to face, right? And so, okay, so you're compartmentalizing even just being a child, right? And so, and you're third wheeled in essence, which I'm, I'm going to say it's like triangulated, right? Like always ostracized in some capacity. And in a way, you're kind of doing the same thing with your job because you're putting yourself in a little box and are, are yes on one hand you're helping right so in your current job like you like it because you're helping other people or whatever but you still feel like you have to shut down who you are so in an essence you're on the outside looking in like the relationships that you grew up with and still telling yourself you can't be you what do you think you're still numbing being alone and being seen Okay, do you want to do an exercise with me? Sure. <laughs> uh, let's make sure both feet are on the floor, legs uncrossed. And just keep your hands, your palms up in a receiving mode, shoulders back, and deep inhale through the nose. Exhale out through the mouth. And I want you to keep your eyes closed so you can have an internal experience versus worry about being watched and I have my eyes closed as well so I'm not watching you and I just want to want to ask you can you feel your pain right now no do you want to feel your pain right now no not really why Because I prefer to feel it privately. So you can compartmentalize and repeat the pattern that you grew up with. And at the risk of being ridiculed, ashamed for for having my feelings or fears. Mm-hmm. So your body tells you, right, that if you do your art, live, live, live in what you feel your path is, you must be ashamed, you must be ridiculed. The risk is very high. Doesn't that make you sad? Yes. Because I feel trapped in that pattern. And it's not, yeah, it's not the first time I'm... I'm at this rodeo. I just I know I've repeated it, recreated that dynamic. So it's not just you know I'm not projecting it on this particular job or this particular culture. It's I know it originates in me. Hmm. So can you just be sad for a minute? How does it feel? It's like if I allow sadness, I may need to do something about it. So you feel uncomfortable sitting in your sadness? Yes. You're sitting in it. You're doing it. Is it really so bad? 
brings a lot of flashbacks. Mm. What kind of flashbacks? The years of you know, living with the work, with the business that I, I felt so empty and so... Um, you know, the way I ran it actually is not that the business is just the way I set it up was draining me so completely physically and emotionally and eventually spiritually that mm. I, I, yeah and it, it, it's that even if I wanted to create I was so running on empty I cannot create from empty wow so it's really like the relationship stuff if you just recreate that now you said you work a lot you're kind of a workaholic if you will right you work 12 mm -hmm. 13 hour days very regularly running from place to place to place without much time so if you just create that running on empty within yourself you don't have to feel the pain right you don't have to actually be vulnerable and and just allow right and it also it's it's a, seems like a legitimate explanation why yeah. in my own eyes i'm not good enough of my art my, my photography because i don't have time to to grow, develop, and perfect my skills, my my um, you know technically and aesthetically. God, it's crazy the things we do to ourselves to keep ourselves out of happiness. Weren't you the one who was telling me the emotion we're most afraid of is actually joy? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm opening my eyes, but I'm not I'm not going to look at you. But I just offer one hand out my palm is up if you just want to put your hand in my hand palm facing down and then i'm going to have my other hand out palm facing down your palm facing up so the reason and i'm still offering you um not eye contact just yet it's really important to me that you feel safe enough like you just shared a lot so i want you to be able to hold space from that and within yourself before having to completely give over. And the reason I have one palm down and one palm up is, is that means we're both giving and receiving. Right? There's space for both in there. And I just want to offer you a little prayer that there's space for all this awareness and healing and, and feeling and that there's also space for you for a new experience while healing. And you're ready if you just want to open your eyes and just look straight at me. And just soften your shoulders and allow yourself to take that in. How do you feel? I can breathe more mm. than before. It's softer. Mm. Yeah, I hear you because you 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 had started talking like really 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 fast, um, like almost I don't want to say manic's not the right word, but just machine gun style. Yeah, there you go, perfect example. And I just saw you drop right into your body, and. One thing I'm really learning for myself, which I, you know, we've been on a road trip because <laughs> we're on our way to a retreat where we both met last year, um, is that uh, gentleness, gentleness is key, right? And I oftentimes want the big, for me, it's for some reason, it's really sexy, like the big, the big answer, the dramatic answer is like the sexy answer, mm. but in reality, it seems like healing really lies in very subtle gentleness in the moment. Like it's really that easy. It's just a question of if we want that or not, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this, the for me, it's also still that glamour of thinking the healing will be just like the burning bush experience. It's gonna yes. be all or nothing, black and white. It's gonna happen overnight and. 
yes. I'm willing to p- come up with my credit card to get this big healing instead mm-hmm. of waiting for those simple moments you know simple abundance simple joys just collecting those marbles into the you know of gratitude of healing of I call them came to believe moments that there's something greater than me mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. the healing is not really of my own making if it was my life would have looked differently basically when I was yeah. 20 yeah. right so yeah then that that's I think the reminder that that softness that simple that I don't have to understand it or mm. underestimate it and yeah it, it's 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 so powerful I was thinking that you have enough awareness to even see how deep your ingrained conditioning goes right I remember when I was um actually listening to uh, a meeting it, it's uh, um, a program that I go to and I was blown away when I thought I had done all this stuff that was so different from the way my parents raised me I thought you know I'd been the rebellious one that the, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks that everything I did le- led me exactly back to that and I'd avoided none of it and I could see so clearly like you know it's it, the stuff is really simple a plus B equals C. I was taught that in childhood. I repeat that now. But it's so hard to put it together because we can make it about the experience. And it's easy to kind of keep that. I call it the running tape. Let me just make it about this thing. Make it about this thing. Make it about this thing. If I fix this thing, it'll be okay. You know, but but the thing is, is if we're not really correlating and like you said, changing the thinking, all the the problem does is become about another problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, like, that's been a lot of my own a dynamic that is very difficult to let go. The con, you know, c- controlling, however we want to describe it, is this this fixer, you know, mm-hmm. like I grew up being a fixer of others, other people's problems, minds, and that it's just ultimately it's it's there's also a lot of a lot of um, it's very attractive for me to it's it's like hope that has no end basically. If I can just fix myself, you know, and mm-hmm, it's always mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. to fix, mm-hmm. you know, it's just if I look close enough, there's always something, you know, and sometimes yeah. there's a pleasure in it's a precarious pleasure. It's 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 not very healthy pleasure in seeing the problem, attributing the at least partially problem to myself than to another person. It's almost no, 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 no. Let me take this on because then I get to focus and fix this. Maybe mm-hmm, I can read mm-hmm. a book or two. You know, it's just mm-hmm. yeah. um, it's only through the a lot of the spiritual process and and being willing to see where's my side of the street. And oftentimes it's really, you know, may not sound very sound very humble, but I've always had that tendency. I feel so much more in, in this really unhealthy comfort zone if I can attribute the problem or dysfunction to myself and it's like oh, mm. I can fix it because if it's yeah. just purely another person then I don't feel I'm in control yeah 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 there's a program that talks all about that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all about how the messages we received in childhood and uh if um you know deep down we got the message or somehow somewhere along the lines came up with the thinking subconsciously that we could fix it it would all be okay Mm. yeah it's not true complete fallacy but that's definitely one of the i mean the, the literally very very primal survival strategies for me you know especially as a child that was the only thing i could control and it's manifested itself in something as innocent looking maybe as altering my appearance or or fantasizing about if i had my hair longer yeah i would feel differently or people will like me will never hurt Mm -hmm. me or whatever it was and then of course it just took life on on its own wherever wherever i found myself and kind of going back to what we originally had started with all that knowledge that i in my late teenage years became very drawn to it's not there was anything wrong with it i needed those tools but dad was using you know something 
in me that was using it for quite self-destructive purposes. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I call it grace, higher power greater than myself, something none of my own making, a mystery that somehow also gave me, it also, it not only became a weapon against myself, but also perhaps became the key to that open that door that I was willing to walk through out of pure desperation, you know, you know, this, this old saying that says we human beings, we are either motivated by desperation or inspiration. And as much as I would like to think, you know, oh, I only want to be motivated by inspiration, that comfort zone of old patterns, it's been purely by desperation and oftentimes desperation gets stuff done too. right that's the yeah. you know we call them bottoms and recovery yeah. you know until then it's just standing still at best mm -hmm. uh, and nothing really shifts uh, but that you know through that it also gave me that momentum to and also be you know recovery is about not only letting go of the being sober and abstinent from mind altering substances like drugs alcohol but also through mind-altering processes. And it's that's progressive, you know. Um, oh, again, yeah. like food or money, I cannot abstain from it or relationships, but I need to learn a way that's healthy, it's balanced, and it's mm -hmm. not used uh, in a self-destructive way. And, and, and so that's kind of the, the tool that the more I'm, the longer I'm sober from the chemicals and also processes are coming becoming with awareness the more i'm vulnerable because i'm i'm unmedicated in essence to what's happening to my own life yeah both past present and out of that only a different future can yeah can have a chance to, exactly. arri to arise yeah you don't just change the thinking magically my, I think my, my perspective on it is that you have to go in and dive into the old trauma. Mm -hmm. Even when you don't think it's affecting you, if you can go there and kind of, you know, do surgery on it, mm. in essence, like then you get a different result. Mm -hmm. You know, because, that's yeah. what I think works. Because there's, again, a lot of psychologists who specialize with a with, um, number of psychologists that come to my mind, you know, they talk about very clearly um, of their own experience and their own practices and, and studies that mind becomes powerless in face of emotion. Like when mind against emotion, the emotion will always win. Yeah. You yep. know? Yep. Yep. Because our mind as human species, it became so intricate and developed to the level that it is today, um, or, you know, way, way after our physically, physical survival nervous system, the limbic system was was working you know and as an individual in a mother's womb and as a newborn where my frontal cortex was still undeveloped and pretty much mostly yeah. offline those imprints were already there and I don't have any conscious memories uh, of a lot of things that happened but I do have reactions to, to yes and that is called scientifically implicit memory reading a great book on that right now called A General Theory of Love, written by three psychiatrists who talk about the disconnect between neuroscience and therapy and about how, you know, implicit memory is like what you said, what is developed in the womb, how, how a child recognizes his or her mother's voice in the first and, and face in the first 48 hours. You know, that's the imprint and the explicit would be you know, what I chose to eat today, like those those simple things versus the feeling based. And it's very real. It's not woo-woo-y. It is scientific. So it's, yeah. And I can't wait to see what more we learn 20 years from now. <laughs> um, may I share something about your hair that we were discussing? Sure. Yeah. Earlier? Yeah, so this the the reason I'm bringing it up is you know I know that you had some um, kind of insecurities about your hairline, which you personally felt was like a bit like kind of funkier, and you felt like your forehead was a little too high, and you know this was just something in the way that you saw yourself. And we did a little bit of a cut that maybe took me I don't know five ten minutes, and it's the tiniest cut but it shifted everything like your your entire hairline looks different even when you're pulling your hair back it looks like you know just it the whole shape is different and and i was thinking what a metaphor it is that the tiniest shift 
shifts everything actually and it's really like it didn't it didn't it didn't take me that long but then it changed the whole shape <laughs> you know and and what i what i wish for you is that you can apply that same principle in in your life around other things like your work and your romantic life that's my my offering to you thank you thank you so much tatiana Thank you, Jacqueline. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the space that you've created for me to share my story. Tatiana has read and studied a lot of psychology, spirituality, metaphysical works, philosophy, and and yes, that has certainly, no doubt, helped her a lot in her recovery. She's only been sober for three and a half to four years, and, and really her, her deep self-knowledge and awareness is huge around that and obviously that's related to the work she'd done prior to becoming an alcoholic however what's important to note about this is that self-knowledge and self-awareness don't solve the issue they didn't solve it for her and how many times have we heard those stories where somebody's done all this work around that right but they still haven't healed the deeper issue when we have something more serious going on right we have to seek outside help for this I'm Jacqueline, the Herapist. Thanks for listening.